Merry Christmas Eve to you all. Hear now the Christmas text. You may know it from Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign to you. You will find a baby in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, let's all say this together. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. God always blesses the reading of God's holy word. Come Holy Spirit, draw us in more as we continue our worship on this Christmas Eve. We praise you and honor you, faithful Father who is come to us in the manger through your son and is with us this evening in your Holy Spirit. God in shape this time as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. I have for you Christmas Eve in three parts. The first one, all based on our text. Part one, things are never as dire as they seem. Part two, things are never as dire as they seem because God is on the move in unexpected ways. And part three, God's unexpected moves bring glorious good news of decisive divine intervention. That's what we're here for tonight. It starts with the baby in the manger. That's where the center of our faith is on this night. But we begin with Caesar Augustus. This is the emperor. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. He became the sole ruler of the Roman world, scholars tell us, after a bloody civil war in which he overpowered all rival claimants. And on our Christmas Eve text, Caesar Augustus calls for the census of the area of of his nation, of his world, his Roman country, because he wants taxes. He wants money. It's clear that this Caesar Augustus is a real guy. Luke is telling us about real people. This isn't a fairy tale. This is real stuff. And this guy, Quirinius, who you heard me mention as well, he's the governor of Syria. He's a real guy too. Scholars tell us that there are certain inscriptions that show that between 10 and 7 BC, Quirinius performed military functions in the Roman province of Syria. So Luke, our writer, who is a physician, he gives great attention to detail. He's writing about real leaders with real political power and real military muscle. The emperor calls, people come running, 
like Joseph. Quirinius is in the background, perhaps an able enforcer. All this is kind of this impressive choreography of power in politics and military might. But that is not all that is going on here. And that's true for all of us now as well. The Caesars may be on the move among us. There are powers that are real and they may even oppress and get us down. But there's this other story that's unfolding that we celebrate right now, this night. It's a story about God who's on the move. And this story started well before Caesar Augustus or Governor Quirinius came on the scene. Our story of Christ's birth is preceded by a longer story, a deeper story. The biblical prophets like Micah operated around Israel between 500 and 1,000 years before Christ. And while Mary is the mother of Jesus in our story, these prophets spoke again and again about God's promise of a Messiah, of a Savior. And in doing so, they gave us a kind of a, of a written ultrasound, right, of what the baby Jesus would actually look like and become in his life. When Joseph goes to Bethlehem, he is living out the, the expression of King David's ancestral line, which King David was born in Bethlehem in the Old Testament uh, times, and, and uh, Joseph was his uh, ancestor. So he had, to go, he had to go to his place, he had to go to his to, to, to uh, David's hometown. Well, it was said that in this place that David was from, Bethlehem, was going to emerge out of this place a leader whose rule was going to last forever. So right here in the Old Testament, we get a little picture, an ultrasound, of the forever leader that would emerge from the same town that David emerged from, Bethlehem, the same town that Joseph's going to in this story. So there's a deeper story that is at work here. Caesars and governors, they're doing their thing, but God's been doing his thing long before they did theirs. In chapter five, uh, verse two of the prophet Micah, written in 750 to 686 BC, long before this night occurs uh, in the uh, New Testament or the story of Jesus' birth occurs in the New Testament, we read, but you, Bethlehem, Though you are small, out of you will come one for me who will be ruler over Israel. There was a ruler who was going to come out of the town where Joseph is taking, uh, well, has taken Jesus as part of the census. So the story is stacking up. In this place now where Joseph is doing this census thing, we've already been told King David's forever ruler, the forever ruler coming out of King David's line is gonna come out of that town. And Micah's prophecy that out of that town will come a ruler who will rule forever as well. So Caesar may be doing his thing, Quirinius may be doing his thing, but God is doing his thing. In our current world, it's so easy to be discouraged with the biggies and the baddies who are flexing their might and doing their thing, whatever that may be. It's easy to be overwhelmed by darkness. It's easy to think sometimes, I'm done, I'm tapped out. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of seeing powers being abused. 
We may feel like we're overwhelmed or outmatched by darkness, that good has been conquered, that the Caesars and the Corinthians and the powers that be overwhelm us. Wars, terrorism, toxic political divides, hatefulness in public discourse, so much more that is so hard. They can be like a Corinthians or they can be like a Caesar, overwhelming us with their power, making us think they're in charge, like they are the only ones that write the story. Not true. God has been writing a story since long before any of them came on the scene. So be assured, things are never as dire as they may appear in life's most dire moments. Whatever is coming down on you. Long before Caesar, Augustus, or Cornelius, or any of the powers we face internally or externally, God has been on the move. Jesus' birth has been written and foretold as our forever ruler. From the line of King David coming out of Bethlehem, prophesied by Micah coming out of this place that Joseph is in now. Things are never as dire as they seem. God is on the move. Part two, God is on the move in ways that are completely unexpected and counterintuitive. God's path to enter our world is not what we'd expect from an all-powerful, almighty God. God's entry point into the world is not about getting in line with or aligned with Caesar or Quirinius. Here's God's modus operandi. Joseph, summoned by Caesar's census, heads up to Bethlehem. And our text says, with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Around 1 a.m. on Sunday morning, December 22nd, 2013, my wife woke me up and said, I think my water broke. And off we went to Geisker Medical Center in Danville, PA. We got there around 1.45 a.m. Our son, Jack, was on the way. Once we arrived, the hospital's labor and delivery, well, they weren't quite ready for us yet. We had called ahead, but they had quite a few rooms that were full. They had a large labor and delivery census that night, and so they sent us back to the waiting room. <laughs> at one point, I turned to Jill and said, there's no room at the inn. <laughs> it was sort of a joke, but it was also sort of serious. I mean, my wife is sitting there, and her water is breaking, and we're not able to get in. We're held up. There's my wife at the start of her birth process for our son, Jack. There's no room, at least for a moment. And so in that early morning 10 years ago, before we were escorted in our beautiful birthing suite at Geisker Medical Center in Danville, Pennsylvania, we got just a wee little taste of birthing in the open. Maybe a little teeny bit of what Joseph and Mary experienced in Bethlehem. But this is how God comes pushing out into the open, vulnerable, first the head, then the shoulders, and there is Jesus our King. She gives birth to her firstborn. She wraps him in cloths and places him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Scholar Leon Morris summarizes it well. He says, the birth of God's son is described very simply, swaddling cloths or long strips which could wrap the child round and round. That Mary wrapped the child herself points to a lonely birth. That he was laid in a manger has traditionally been taken to mean that Jesus was born in a stable. 
He may have been. He may have been. But it's also possible that the birth took place in a very poor home where the animals shared the same roof as the family. A tradition going back to Justin, Justin Martyr, an early historian, says it occurred in a cave. And this could be right too. Some have thought that the birth took place in the open air, possibly the courtyard of an inn. That's where the manger would likely have been. We don't know exactly. We do know that everything points to poverty, obscurity, and even rejection in Christ's birth. There was no place for them. This is how God comes in a completely unexpected way. Things are never as dire as we think because God is on the move and has been on the move for a long time. But when God moves, he moves in a way that's totally unexpected. And this environment in which Jesus is born in the open was not a neutral, benign environment. There were dangers. There was an oppressive regime threatening the status of the religion and culture that Jesus was born into. Yet, when Jesus enters in, he doesn't enter in flanked by a military escort in order to stay secure. He enters in lying in a manger as vulnerable as you and I can possibly imagine. When you and I contend with darkness, it's tempting to become darkness, to fight the darkness, isn't it? I imagine most of us have persons or entities that have troubled us, either now or in the past, maybe even oppress us or hurt us or or at least hinder us from, from experiencing good life. It's tempting when you face that sort of thing to fight fire with fire, to contend with powers, powers like Caesar Augustus and Governor Quirinius by playing by their rules as if their rules define reality. I mean, imagine if current political operatives were advising Jesus on how to start his ministry. They probably would have said something to Jesus like this. Hey, Jesus, our advice to you is to connect with Emperor Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus, get on his good side, build a partnership with the emperor. You'll need his help. He's got a lot of pull. He's the emperor. Imagine what you could do if you got in the room with the emperor. Oh, uh, also, if you want protection, check out Quirinius, governor of Syria. He's got an army at his disposal, ready to go 24-7. It's good to have friends with that kind of pull and power. Know what I mean? Well, no. That's not how the God in the manger operates at all. At the manger, God becomes vulnerable. At the manger, fragile new life is out in the open. At the manger, God moves in grace toward an undeserving world. This, by the way, if you've had a college philosophy class or religion class, you may have come across someone named Ludwig Feuerbach. He was a a philosopher in the 1800s. He theorized that Christianity was just a projection of human uh, longings. And and he, he dismissed it. It was an atheist. Here's the problem with Feuerbach's thesis. He didn't understand first century realities. He wasn't, he, he didn't get his history straight. There's no way that early Jews would have projected a baby in the manger to save them. That's a completely thought flawed thesis just based on the history. Jews in the first century were not looking for a vulnerable baby in the manger. They were looking for a they were looking for someone more like uh, Chuck Norris, <laughs> something along those lines, right? Or insert your contemporary you know, tough guy in there. Now, to be clear, this manger was not a call to withdraw from the world. It's how God came into the world. But the manger was a call, and is a call, to operate in the world in a wholly different way. 
not moving to overpower the narrative with the power plays that, is, that are out there, but moving to overtake the story with a whole other story. This is gonna be a suffering servant who sidesteps past the worldly power, teaches us ways that subvert it, that refocus it, humiliates himself by dying on a cross, but it turns out that death on the cross is the knockout punch to death and sin. When we move with God, who comes in the manger, we love where other people hate. We serve our enemies. We give grace to the graceless. We bring light in the darkest darkness. We don't fight dark, darkness with more darkness. And we share undying hope in the face of death. Not because these are merely good ideas, loving, serving, gracing, and lighting things up, but because they are Jesus. They're exactly who Jesus is. He is love that becomes vulnerable in the manger. He is grace for the undeserved in the manger. He is light in the darkest place in the manger. He is love for his enemies out in the open in the manger. He is hope in the face of death. So things are never as dire as they seem because God is on the move, but this God moves in unexpected ways. And then lastly, number three, the unexpected ways in which God moves bring glorious good news of decisive intervention. The angel said to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. As Christian writer Rebecca McLaughlin points out, the first century Jews were waiting for someone to save them from the Romans. But the angel's words suggest they had a bigger problem than the Romans. The early Jews needed a savior from themselves. And so do we. Scholar Joel Green notes that Caesar Augustus was the grandnephew, as I said, uh, and later the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Augustus was recognized as the sole leader of the Roman world in 27 BCE. As Dr. Green describes it, Caesar Augustus was given the honor due to one who seemed more like a god than a human. In fact, one ancient inscription, check this out, an ancient inscription declares, divine Augustus Caesar, son of God, son of a God, savior of the whole world. So into a world where Augustus himself was known as savior and into a world where others, rulers, physicians, and so on, were called saviors, the gospel of Luke declares that the role of savior has been transferred to Jesus in the manger. And his birth calls into question the emperor's status as savior. And he calls into question the status of any other saviors we could possibly have in our life. Savior is a huge, rich, and complex word. It encompasses forgiveness of sins. We all need forgiveness. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John the Baptist would say later when he points at Jesus, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is our savior because he forgives us. He provides forgiveness to us on the cross. Jesus is our savior because he saves us for good works. His perfect life of obedience that he would, would grow to, to have becomes the place which, out of which in our relationship with him, we can become more obedient 
to the Father because Jesus was first. And by knowing him and having him in our lives, we too can become obedient. So he's forgiveness for us. He saves us by forgiving us. He saves us by bringing the obedience to the Father into our lives that we could not do on our own. And he saves us from our death that we will all face. He says, I am the resurrection and life. Anyone who believes in me, even though they die, will live. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. We need a savior. And Jesus saves us in these ways and more. They looked for a Messiah in this day, a political leader to throw the yoke off of Rome. God had bigger, better ideas that God was working on from way back, as we said earlier, prophesying through the life of King David and also through the prophets. Things are never as dire as they appear to be because God is on the move. God is on the move in ways that surprise us and are the, sometimes the exact opposite of what we, were, what, we, what we would ever project. Feuerbach was wrong. And God moves in ways that are definitive and decisive. Lastly, the angel in our text calls Jesus in the manger Lord. Jesus is royalty, God's son in the flesh in the manger. He gets in trouble with the religious leaders because he acts like God. He pronounces forgiveness of sins when he's an adult to a man who didn't even ask for it. He reinterprets the Sermon on the Mount like he's God of the law. He calms the storm he sees in chapter eight and then 20 chapters later in chapter eight of Matthew and then 20 chapters later, he receives worship. Jesus is no mere human being with a big heart. He is, he is God and humanity in the flesh, 100% man and 100% God and not less of either because he's both. Jesus is large and in charge. That little one in the manger will grow to be, as Paul tells us in Colossians 1, the one in whom all things hold together. He's holding you and me together right now. And given the severity of our predicament, nothing less will do. New Testament scholar Tom Wright summarizes it well, saying, the birth of this little boy is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God in all its apparent weakness, insignificance, and vulnerability, and the kingdoms of the world. The emperor Caesar Augustus never heard of Jesus of Nazareth, but within a century or so, his successors in Rome had not only heard of him, they were taking steps to obliterate his followers. And within just over three centuries, the emperor himself became a Christian. Maybe you felt the 4.0 earthquake this morning, about three miles west of Quilcene, confirmed by the USGS this morning around 7.15. I did. That's always something to feel that jolt. As I said earlier, um, it, in, the, in the earlier service today, it reminds us that we aren't in charge. <laughs> On this Christmas Eve, we're reminded of who is. Jesus' birth, when you really consider everything we just talked about, is the jolt you and I need to be assured things are never as dire as they seem. God is on the move. That God is on the move in ways that surprise us and blow our minds and that are counterintuitive and that the moves of God that are unexpected our decisive and definitive divine intervention that you and I desperately need. Be assured, be hopeful. Merry Christmas. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen.